0: Scripture reading this morning is in Acts chapter number 13. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Now, there were in the church of, at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the holy spirit looked intently at him and said you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness full of all deceit and villainy will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the lord and now behold the hand of the lord is upon you you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us over these next few moments as we seek to study and apply your word to our lives today. I pray that you'd give each one of us uh, ears that are eager to listen, hearts that are ready to obey what the Spirit of God has for us in your word this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our series going through the book of Acts, and today we begin a new section. Uh, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, which will carry on through the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, Thus far, Peter has been the main character of Acts, and the church at Jerusalem has been the main focus, sort of the center of activity for the first 12 chapters. But beginning here in chapter 13, Antioch becomes the focus, and Paul becomes the main character from here on. So today's text begins with Paul being sent out on the first Church planting trip, which ends up being his life's work. Uh, Paul ends up traveling around from one city to the next, all throughout uh, modern day Turkey and Greece, even as far as Italy at the end of his life. So, God uses Paul to launch the church into these new places uh, where people often knew nothing about Jesus. They knew nothing, in some cases, about the true God at all. And so, this chapter is a turning point in the book of Acts. And uh, we'll now focus on the endeavors of Paul to establish churches in new places where the gospel has not yet gone. We begin in verse 1 of chapter 13, which says, There was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Uh, Barnabas, you know well at this point, but just to review... He had been a core member of the Church of Jerusalem for probably about 20 years, give or take a few. Uh, Barnabas was an encouraging man, hence the name Barnabas. It's actually a nickname, which means a son of encouragement. Such was his reputation in that first church in Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas, back in Acts chapter 4, had sold a field, and he had given the proceeds of the sale to the church. And so we get the idea he's a very generous man, very committed to uh, the mission of the church. A few years later, we run into him in Acts 9 when, the, uh, when Saul is converted to Christ. And on that occasion, you may remember that Barnabas was the only one in the church of Jerusalem that was willing to receive Saul as a true brother in the Lord. Uh, you remember Saul had that dramatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He went from persecuting and opposing the church Uh, to trying to join with them. And understandably, a lot of people were a little skeptical, a little concerned about this, wondering if he was for real. But not Barnabas. Barnabas welcomed Saul and took him under his wing. Then in Acts chapter 11, about 13 years later now, uh, the church at Antioch was exploding with growth, and the apostles send Barnabas up there to lead the church. Uh, Barnabas then reunites with his friend Saul, who had been over in Uh, Tarsus, he brings him back to Antioch to help with the growing church there in the city of Antioch. And so they've been there for about a year now, uh, Saul and Barnabas teaching and leading the church side by side. Now, in between those two names that you're probably familiar with, Barnabas and Saul, there's three names you've probably never heard of or wouldn't wouldn't remember, uh, Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean. We don't know much of anything about these three men. Uh, Simeon and Menaean are never mentioned again in Scripture, Uh, Lucius is possibly mentioned in uh, passing in Romans 16. Uh, Not sure if it's the same Lucius or not. But together with Saul and Barnabas, these five men were the leaders of the church in Antioch. These would have been the elders of that church. It is significant that these are all men, as it has always been the design of God, that men would lead the church. It's also significant that there's more than one. Uh, It's also been God's design that there would be a plurality of elders. We know that there are times in Scripture, even, uh, when a new church is being planted and there's only one pastor for a time. Paul, for example, at times uh, pastored churches by himself, it seems, at least for a time. Uh, But that's not ideal. The best-case scenario is for a church to have multiple men leading and teaching the church. And such was the case here at Antioch, this growing church led by these five men who were teaching and overseeing this church. Uh, One more thing of note, I think, is the diversity of the group. You notice Simeon called Niger, the Latin word for black or dark, uh, probably from Africa. Uh, Lucius was from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. Uh, Saul and Barnabas, we know, are both Jews. Saul's from uh, Cilicia. Barnabas is from Cyprus. And then Manan was a lifelong friend of Herod, uh, which probably means he was a foster brother of Herod, so they would have grown up together. And so we've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, all teaching and leading together this vibrant, growing church in Antioch. And in verse 2, in the middle of all of that, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the activity of these leaders. They are worshiping the Lord and fasting. That could refer to just the five elders mentioned or the whole church in Antioch. Uh, Hard to say based on the grammar there, which it is. Uh, But more on on the fasting in a minute. We'll get to that later. But notice the Holy Spirit says, uh, set Barnabas and Saul apart. I have a task for them. I have a, a, a unique mission that I want these two to be a part of. We're not told how God communicated this. It's possible, you know, maybe they just heard a voice booming from heaven Uh, telling them this, but I'd say it's probably more likely that would have been through a prophet. This seems to be the consistent pattern throughout Acts that God speaks through a prophet, something like this. And uh, we know that in this church at Antioch, there were many prophets like Agabus that we've already seen. But in any case, the Holy Spirit communicated to the church that Saul and Barnabas were to leave them. Verse three says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Total submission to the Lord. Uh, These were two of the key leaders of their church, the main teachers of this church. Losing them would seem to be a big blow to the church in Antioch. But the Holy Spirit had made it clear that this was his will. And so they fasted, they prayed for them, uh, they laid their hands on them, which was a way of conveying that we're we're supporting you in this endeavor, we're behind you, we're with you. And then they sent Barnabas and Saul away. I think the first lesson we ought to learn from this is, Is that God's kingdom is a lot bigger than our church. No matter how big or influential a church may become, God's kingdom is bigger. And that means at times God will take some people from one church and send them out to start other churches. He'll take somebody like Barnabas from the church in Jerusalem, send him up to Antioch to help establish that church. And then a few years later, he'll take Saul and Barnabas away from the church at Antioch, send them out to do something else. That is, uh, all of it is his will. He's orchestrating the whole thing for the expansion and advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Losing Saul and Barnabas would have been hard for the church at Antioch, uh, but what a great thing it was for the kingdom of Jesus. These two went out and they spent years uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus all over new regions where people had never heard Uh, The gospel. And so uh, they they planted churches, all of it because these men were submissive to the will of God. It may have seemed hard at the time uh, for the church at Antioch to give up Saul and Barnabas, yet God had made it clear this was something, he had something else for them to do. And so the church simply obeyed the Lord. Now let's get into fasting because I think in probably the years that I've been here, I don't know that I've ever talked much about fasting. At least I couldn't recall Uh, really diving into this subject. But I imagine for some here that are newer to the faith, this may be kind of a foreign concept to you. Uh, What is fasting? What is all this about? And so I thought we'd just take an opportunity to explain what fasting is, because you see it mentioned here twice in these couple of verses. And so I'm going to show you what fasting is all about uh, by looking at a few passages of scripture on the subject. This is by no means exhaustive. Fasting is uh, all over the Old and New Testament. Uh, But these will help give you a good understanding of what it is. Uh, Fasting simply means going without food uh, for a period of time. That's why the first meal of the day is called breakfast. I don't know if you know that because you've been fasting all night. Maybe it's been 12 hours, 14 hours since you've eaten, and then you break the fast uh, your first meal of the day. That's where that term comes from. But fasting, generally speaking, is just going a period of time without eating. In many cases in the Old Testament, people fasted for a day, sometimes for a week, uh, Daniel, for example, fasted for 21 days on one occasion. And a few times in scripture, people fasted for 40 days. Uh, they would be drinking only water, eating no food. Uh, we actually can survive for between, some of you might be thinking, I would die if I tried to go without food that long. Uh, actually, most people can survive between two and three months uh, without any food. Now, the point of fasting isn't weight loss, and it isn't just self-denial, although I think self-denial is a part of it but fasting is always tied to prayer. Fasting is prayer on steroids. Uh, The idea being that you forsake food for a period of time and you devote yourself to prayer, usually for a specific thing. And what happens is you get really hungry and uh, your stomach starts to growl. And every time that you feel that hunger, it reminds you to pray. And so let's look at a few examples of fasting in scripture, beginning in the Old Testament. Uh, Ezra 8 is where we'll start. This is where Ezra is Uh, Leading back some of the Jewish people to return to Israel. And verse 21 says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. And so they're fasting and praying for protection on this journey. Verse 23 says, We fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaties. So this is the idea that you're praying. Uh, for something important, something specific that you have a request uh, you'd like to make known to the Lord. And so you forsake food for a period of time and devote yourself to prayer. And I would say in scripture, there are generally uh, three categories of prayers that are accompanied by fasting. Prayers expressing repentance would be the first. Prayers asking for help or deliverance would be the second. And the prayers asking for direction or guidance would be the third. So we're going to go through each one of these three categories, and I'll show you them uh, from a few texts. First, Nehemiah 1, looking at a prayer of repentance. Nehemiah 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the exile in concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying. Before the God of heaven. And we get an idea of what he was praying throughout that time in the following verses. Verse 5 I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you, even I. Dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants whose delight to fear your name. And give us give success to your servants today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, if you keep reading through Nehemiah, you'll find out that God answered this prayer. Essentially, what's happening here? is the the children of Israel have sinned against the Lord, and so they've been taken away captive into exile from uh, Jerusalem. And so years later, Nehemiah is praying a prayer of repentance to the Lord. He's fasting for a period of, I don't say exactly how long, but several days at least that he says there. Uh, He's praying, he's expressing repentance to the Lord, and asking God to restore them. And eventually, God does answer this request. He brings them back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the city, and the relationship there is restored. And so Nehemiah fasted and prayed as a way to get God's attention. You notice in those verses, he says, let your ears be attentive, let your eyes be open. I want you know, Look at me, I hear my request, God. And so he's, he's asking God that he would restore the children of Israel. Another uh, similar situation in terms of a prayer of repentance would be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 7. I'm not going to go through uh, the backstory of all of these to show you what's going on here. Just pay attention to the fasting part. And uh, you'll see a common theme here. Beginning in verse 3, Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. They're forsaking their idolatry here. Uh, Verse 5, Then Samuel said... Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And so again, this is a prayer of repentance that's connected with fasting. Uh, Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And so they fasted as a nation. They prayed, expressing their repentance from idolatry. God heard them and, and answered their requests. Uh, last one on this repentance theme. This is the famous story of Jonah. Remember Jonah, He after his trip through the whale and all of that, uh, he ends up in Nineveh. He preaches to them, tells them that God is going to send judgment against them for their sin. And verse five says, the people of Nineveh believed God. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, so that would be another example of fasting for repentance. We've sinned against God, and so we fast, pray, we seek forgiveness, restoration. Uh, Next, and we'll go faster with these, sometimes people fast for help or for deliverance. They're in a difficult situation. Uh, maybe even seemingly an impossible situation. And so it's not that they've necessarily uh, been in sin and they're coming back to God, but rather they just have a specific request, a desperate need that they want to fast and pray about. Uh, maybe it's a, a difficult situation. You're out of answers. You don't know what to do. Uh, you don't know how you're going to make it through something. That's a time to fast and pray. Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, first example of this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites... And with them, some of the Menunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are at on Hazaz- uh, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Uh, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. We're not going to read the whole story, but again, God hears their prayers. He sends deliverance. He answers their requests. He delivers them from their enemies. Again, this isn't so much a fast of repentance, but a fast for deliverance. Another such case would be the story of Esther. We're not going to go there uh, right now, but she's in a difficult situation. If you know that story, her life is at risk and she asks people to fast and pray for her for three days. God hears those prayers. He, he rescues uh, the Jewish people. She's, she is spared. And uh, once again, fasting for deliverance. And then the third uh, broad category <clears throat> excuse me, is fasting for direction or for guidance. <clears throat> and, and just uh, to getting ahead of myself a little bit, <clears throat> Excuse me. I think this is what's happening in Acts 13. Uh, they're fasting for guidance or deliverance. Uh, they want to know, you know, they've been given the Great Commission to go into all the world with the gospel, but they don't know maybe what the next step is. And so God, they, they fast, they pray, uh, and God eventually says to them, send Barnabas and Saul out as church planters. And so I think that's what's happening there in Acts chapter 13. Uh, but in Judges 20, we have another example of this sort of fasting for guidance or direction. Uh, Judges 20, beginning with verse 25. And Benjamin went out against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. <clears throat> then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And so in this situation... Uh, They have an army coming against them. They don't know what they're supposed to do. And so they, uh, not out of desperation necessarily, not out of repentance, they're just asking God uh, for direction or guidance. And God gives them that. And so they, they fast, they pray for a day, and they seek direction. So fasting can be done then for a variety of reasons. But essentially, fasting is prayer intensified. And by the way, Jesus expected that his followers would fast. Uh, this ought to be a part of every Christian's life at times. It doesn't mean you have to fast you know, one day a week uh, you know, for the rest of your life or one week out of the month or something like that, but there ought to be times, seasons in our life, where we are seeking the Lord intently and we fast for a period of time. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice twice in those verses, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. It's assumed that followers of Jesus would fast. And Jesus says, don't make a big show of it. Don't try to impress people. Uh, when you are fasting, and I think we need to be careful here, though, not to make this say more than it's intending to say. I used to think that uh, fasting had to be kept top secret uh, because of this verse. I can't let anybody know that I'm fasting uh, or else it'll be kind of a waste of time. That was the mentality that I had. Uh, like, you know, if somebody in my family asked me why I'm not eating dinner. I had to come up with some excuse because uh, I can't just tell them that I'm fasting. I don't think that is the point fasting can be individual or corporate. Israel fasted at times as a nation. We saw kings would proclaim a fast. Uh, The church at Antioch is fasting here in Acts chapter 13. There's nothing wrong with publicly or as a group uh, fasting. The point that Jesus is driving at here in Matthew is, don't make a big show of it like the religious hypocrites did. Uh, They would wear certain clothes, they would disfigure their faces so everybody around them knew, oh, we're fasting right now, and they'd be all impressed with their spirituality. Jesus is saying, "Uh, don't do that, don't make a big show of it, but uh, there's nothing wrong with somebody finding out that you're fasting, uh, nothing wrong with doing it as a group. And so with that in mind, uh, I would like for our church on occasion to fast. This will be totally voluntary, you choose if you want to participate or not. But I think that there are times throughout the life of a church where this ought to be the case. I will remind you of this again in a month or so, but I think it would be great if some of us fasted for the Christmas Eve uh, service that we're going to have here next month. Uh, If you were here last month, we didn't really do much advertising or anything, but we uh, did have some visitors show up for that. This year we're doing a lot more advertising. Uh, We have some door hangers printed up, some invitations. We're going to put signs out and all sorts of things like that. And so we'll begin putting those out in December. I think this is one of the best opportunities we have throughout the year to reach new people. A lot of people, as I've said before, won't come to church if you invite them on a Sunday, uh, but they'll come for Christmas or Easter. So this is a good opportunity for us to invite people from our community to come uh, to our church. They will hear a very clear gospel presentation. I was just thinking as I was uh, preparing the sermon, it would be a good opportunity, very appropriate, I think, for us as a church uh, to fast prior to that service and see what the Lord may do. Uh, again, it will be totally voluntary. Uh, no one will know if you participated or not. We're not going to have like a checklist or anything like that that's between you and the Lord. Uh, but I would encourage you, if you've never fasted before, uh, maybe this would be a good time for you to start. Fasting <clears throat> gets God's attention. That's something that we see uh, throughout Scripture, is that fasting gets God's attention. It shows our faith in prayer. You wouldn't do this unless you really believed that God hears and answers prayer. And throughout scripture we see God do some incredible things in response to his people fasting and praying. A deliverance from seemingly impossible situations, a guidance is given at times, forgiveness and restoration, all as a result of fasting. And then just on a practical side since I'm aware that uh, perhaps some of you have never fasted before this may be a totally new concept for you, here are a few tips I would offer. Uh, First, do not try to fast for an extended period of time right off the bat, okay? If you've never fasted before, uh, try a day. Don't try a week, a month right off the bat, try a day. Uh, Maybe the next time, try for two days. But if you're going to fast, uh, start small. Uh, Secondly, if you're going to fast, drink plenty of water. (laughs) It is very easy to get lightheaded, And, uh, you know, you stand up and you pass out if you're not eating, so just stay hydrated. Uh, That helps a lot. And then one more thing I want to say before we move on. Fasting is not an automatic way to get God to do whatever you want, okay? That's not the case. Uh, There are times in Scripture where someone fasted and God still said no. Uh, For example, God told King David when his uh, child was going to die, verse 16 of Second Samuel 12, David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted, and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, "Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. They're thinking he may be you know, suicidal or something uh, when he finds out that his child has died. Verse 19, But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And, they, and David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, "'What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food.' He said, "'While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, "'Who knows whether the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again?' I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And so this is an example where David fasted, he prayed earnestly, and God did not give him exactly what he was asking for. So fasting doesn't mean that God is obligated 100% of the time uh, to answer your prayer in the way that you would want him to. But nonetheless, it is something we see throughout Scripture as a means of getting God's attention. And often, uh, God responds to the prayers and fasting of his people. Uh, I can also tell you just from my own personal experience, this is something that the Lord will use in your own life as well. Uh, Times in my life where I have felt closest to God, where I've had his word uh, opened up to me in a special way, have often been times of extended fasting. And uh, even as I was preparing the sermon, I was convicted that for me, it's been a while. It's probably been too long uh, since I fasted. And so I want to encourage all of us To make this a part of our life, at times of desperation, times when we're seeking guidance, uh, times when we are longing for repentance, for some uh, patterns of sin in our lives, whatever the case may be, uh, fasting ought to be a tool in our toolbox that we use uh, somewhat regularly as Christians. Back to our text, verse 1. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I love how verse 4 begins there. They were sent out by the Holy Spirit. God was in charge of all of this. The church in Antioch was simply obeying the Holy Spirit's leading. And so Saul and Barnabas, they leave Antioch, they head down to Seleucia, the port of Antioch, and they sail from there to the island of Cyprus. Uh, Barnabas was from Cyprus. I don't know if that's why they headed there or uh, what the reasoning was. Maybe it was just close by, and so they decided to go there first. We're not told. Uh, But they head down uh, to Cyprus, and that begins their first missionary journey. We're going to wrap up this morning just by looking quickly at verses five through 12, which records an incident that took place while they were on the island of Cyprus. Beginning in verse five, it says, "When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So they're going throughout the synagogues of Cyprus, uh, preaching the gospel of Jesus to these Jewish uh, people primarily. And notice there they have John to assist them. This would be John Mark, uh, Barnabas' cousin, whom they had brought up from Jerusalem in the last chapter. Verse 6 says, when they had gone through the whole island, so they've gone from the east coast of the island to the west coast, just stopping at each uh, city along the way, and they make it as far as Paphos. Uh, This is, uh, just to give you an idea of what this looks like, it's about 90 miles across the island of Cyprus, so it's a lot bigger than it looks like on that map. And so they sail from Antioch to Cyprus. They preach the gospel really all throughout that island, uh, starting at the east coast and uh, ending up on the west. So they leave Antioch. They head for Cyprus. They preach the gospel throughout there. At Paphos, this is the west side of the island, so they're about to leave here, they came upon a certain magician, verse 6 says, when they had gone through the whole island uh, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. A proconsul was a Roman official who ruled uh, over a province under the control of the Roman Senate. So sort of like Pontius Pilate or Herod, they had governance over a certain region. Uh, This would be uh, sort of, in, in today's language, we would probably call this guy a governor. Okay, so he had some, some authority over this region of this island of Cyprus. And he calls for Barnabas and Saul. He wants to hear the gospel that, that they've been preaching uh, all over his, his area there. Verse 8, But Alimus the magician, this is uh, Bar-Jesus mentioned in the previous verses, Alimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Uh, By the way, that note there where Paul, uh, Paul is just the Roman name that Saul had. Okay, and from this point forward, Luke is always going to refer to him as Paul. So in the early chapters, he's known by his uh, Jewish name, Saul. In the later chapters, he's known by Paul. Uh, Same person though. So Saul or Paul looks at at, at this uh, magician who is opposing them as they're preaching the gospel to the proconsul. Verse 10, he says, "'You son of the devil.'" And so just as we wrap up this morning, I think a few principles that we draw from this. As we spread the gospel, uh, some will be open to hear the message. Some will be like this proconsul who summoned Barnabas and Saul and said, "Uh, come, I I want to hear what you have to say. They are seeking people out there uh, who are, I'm sorry, there are seeking people out there who will be willing to listen. And we can also anticipate opposition from others. Uh, like this magician, people who will be angry at us for our message, people who will seek uh, to shut us down and to dissuade others from believing. But we have to remember that there is good soil out there. Jesus taught us this principle in the parable of the soils. uh, We talked about someone scattering seed. Not all of it lands in good soil. Some of it is eaten by birds. Some of it is trampled. Some of it uh, doesn't produce anything. But if you just keep throwing the seed of the gospel out, We trust that that as we're faithful to preach the gospel, there will be some who will respond with faith and repentance.